Did the word hate bother you? Does the word hate bother you? When he was reading that, didn't it be like, I hate those who are, are, you know, your enemies with perfect hatred, right? Because in our culture, that, that word um, is, like, is like really bad, right? You hate is like the worst thing you could possibly be, you know, besides a Raiders fan. And so, um, right? So today, the sermon is called Hate the Cursed Life and Join the Resistance. So, got one Star Wars reference already, so my nerd count is going up, right? Got to check those boxes. Um, but the word hate, it's, it's, we're going to talk a bit about it. We're going to learn that hating is actually um, kind of important, uh, and it's real, and we have to talk about it, and we have to deal with it. And so um, we're going to talk about when we hate life, how we're supposed to do that. And sometimes you got to hate the life that you're in. You, you, there's just... It's not good, right? Until to, to well, we'll get into that. In just a minute. I got to pray before I get started because, uh, yeah, you just always got to pray before a Bible study. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have adopted me into your family, and each one of us, God, who has put our hope in you, Lord, you have accepted us perfectly, and and you have given us forgiveness. You have set us free from all our sin and all the punishment. And when you look at us, you do not see the dirty, rotten sinners that we are and what we do. But God, you see Jesus's perfect life just all over us. You see his obedience placed in our account and our sinfulness hanging upon Jesus, hanging on the cross. And Jesus, we cannot be thankful enough that you would shower us with such mercy because we do not deserve to be forgiven and we do not deserve your love, but God, you have poured out this love on undeserving, unsuspecting people. Many of us were just going about our lives and you, God, you, you broke in to our darkness with your light. You broke into our sorrow and sadness with your joy. But God, we still remember sometimes we're still right there where we feel the sorrow and the sadness and the brokenness of this world right now and, and the curse that all of us bear. And it hurts. It is painful, this life. When we, when we engage in, in uh, when we see death, when we experience and taste and feel what death brings, it's, it really is terrible. And I thank you that you are a God that not only understands that, but you are a God that has swallowed it. You have taken death and you have swallowed it into your very being and you have done away with it forever. And you invite us into your everlasting life. So Lord, help us to understand and know what, who you really are and what you really, really think about us. And what you've called us into, invited us into. Lord, forgive us for our sin. And we thank you that, Jesus, you have set us free. Amen. Okay, so again, today's sermon is called Hate the Cursed Life and Join the Resistance. Life is, like I said, upsetting. Life is, uh, I'll talk about that at the end. Thank you for the reminder. Life is difficult. Life can get you down. 
life is not fair, I should be getting amens like, amen, amen right? All these, you know, it's, it's hard. And, and the worst part of life is death. That's the worst part of, of the curse is death. It's the final execution of the sentence of the curse that happened in the Garden of Eden. We earned this sentence, and it's, it's really more than we can bear. Speaking of sentences, do you know why Pepper went to prison? For assault. That was a good one, right? Okay. So God, God sentenced us to this sad, cursed life, you know, way back in the Garden of Eden, but that sentence came with a promise that he, God himself, would share in that sentence with us, even though he didn't deserve that. His rules were the one that were broken. We broke the rules, but he, he promised us. He says, I'm going to share in this sentence. In fact, I'm going to completely take this sentence for you on your behalf. And he did this way back in the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of your Bible, we have the very first mention of the gospel, which is God's plan to save the world. And so God, God said, and way back in Genesis, he, you know, Adam and Eve had just fallen and just eaten, you know, broken the rules. And, and so God was like, guys, what did you do? And Adam's like, it wasn't me. It was my woman, this woman you gave me. And the woman's like, it wasn't me. It was this talking snake that I listened to. And God's like, what is going on? But God said, I'm sorry, guys, but that's sin. And I have to, I told you that there would be a curse. There would be death that would follow if you chose to live in sin. But God said, I still love you. And he made provision for the people. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the snake here. And the snake is uh, Satan. And between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, so that's like ancient poetry. It's, it's when you just look at it literally, you're like, who, who is the seeds? What are seeds? And why is, she ta- why is he talking to a snake? And what does this have to do with anything? Let me just briefly explain what that is. The seed of the woman would be a child that, she, that eventually one of Eve's descendants would give birth to. And this child would defeat everything that Satan had just done. He convinced man to join his side of rebellion against God. And so uh, that whole rebellious life, that whole rebellion and the curse that came with it, God said, this seed is going to conquer that uh, rebellion. And, and he says that when he says, he shall bruise your head, Jesus is going to bruise Satan's head, you shall bruise his heel. That's not in chronological order, because the first thing that happened is Satan got Jesus crucified. Like, and so Satan thought he won. Ah, Jesus came. You know, the, the, um, the son of God was born, and he came, and I got him killed. But Jesus, by dying on the cross as a, as a sinless human being, He was able to take all the death and all the curse upon him. And now there's no more death and no more curse that Satan has any right to. He he can't, he has no claim on any person anymore. And so Jesus actually defeated Satan. And that's why it says, he shall bruise your head. 
Satan has no more power to take anyone to hell that doesn't want to go. And so we now live in a world where Satan doesn't have that power and Jesus has come and Jesus has defeated sin. And so he says, anyone who wants to call out to me and wants, wants my forgiveness does not have to go to hell anymore. Beautiful. It's, it's a gracious offer of love. So that's what happened. Jesus was that seed. He's the son of God. He wasn't just a human. He was God. Became, he, he became fully a man, but he was still God at the same time. And Jesus, when he came on earth, he saw that life stunk. Life was hard. Life was difficult. And Jesus experienced it. Look what he, in John chapter 11, look what's, what's written here. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. So this is a story of when Lazarus, Jesus is, you could call him his best friend, his friend, his dear close friend, and his sister Mary. Lazarus dies, okay? And here Jesus, this seed of promise from God, way back from the Garden of Eden, he is confronted with the ultimate shot glass of how much it stinks to be a human and live in this cursed world. He, he has to experience death. He comes face to face with death. And how does Jesus feel when he ex, ex, is confronted with death? He's very angry. He's very upset. All the weeping, all the crying. You know, Lazarus was too young to die. You know, uh, he was the dear friend of Jesus. He was a beloved son and brother. And Jesus shows that he really knows what it means to taste the curse that sin earned. He became human so that he could deliver us from this curse. But first, he had to taste it. How did Jesus feel about it? All the bad things that have happened to you in your life? Jesus is so brokenhearted for the pain that you've had to go through. For all the unfair things, Jesus, it says, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And that is a deep, in the Greek, it's a deep anger that welled up inside him. He is so angry that things did not go as planned. But his perspective is way bigger than just your life. And oh, I didn't get my scholarship and I'm, I couldn't go to the college I went to. No, he's like way back in the garden. He had an eternity planned of, of just amazing, glorious life where he walked with his creation. He was father and they were son. And he just got to experience the relationship that he designed. But it was all messed up. And he's so brokenhearted about it. And Jesus shows us that the right response to all this cursed stuff that we have to go through is anger mixed with, let's read the next uh, verse here in the text. It says, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. So Jesus is Response first is anger. It shouldn't be this way. Life should not be this way. Can I get an amen? 
Life shouldn't be this way. Anyone have a perfect life that they're like, my life is perfect. You can get out because we're not a church like that. No, there's nobody that thinks that. But Jesus is like, this is wrong. And Jesus responds with sorrow and love. Sorrow and love. Now, that's interesting because a lot of times when I'm frustrated, when I'm angry, I don't add love to the pot. You know what I add? More anger, or I throw something, or I I get, I flesh out, I do what makes me feel better. Jesus didn't lose control and add to the wreckage of this world, did he? He didn't lose control. He had a, a measured response of love and sorrow to the, the horrible death that he was confronted with. He experienced hate, hatred for what this life is, sorrow for the loss and pain everyone was feeling, and then he chooses to let love come out of him. He conquers with love. See, with Jesus, the great wrongs of this life will be transformed into a canvas where his love is displayed. And you can, you can take that to the bank and you can think about that in your life. All of the great, horrible, disgusting tra- travesties that have been committed against you, Jesus says, I will make a painting of glorious love for you. I will heal you. I will restore you. I will take what the enemy designed to kill and I will resurrect That's who Jesus is. And if you came here today, Jesus wanted you to hear that. That his love is a healing, restoring, powerful love for you. Just like this crowd that's watching Jesus right now. So this is a funeral that Jesus is at. And this crowd is going to see the love and the power of God displayed as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus says, come out, and Lazarus comes out, and he's got all this grave clothes on him, and he looks like a mummy, but it's happy. He's a happy mummy. And just like that, Jesus is going to eventually destroy every part of the curse of sin that, that is, is, is manifest in death with resurrection. He's going to do it in his own life, and he's going to do it in your life too. He's going to raise the things that have been killed in your life. Maybe it was your joy. Maybe it was your sense of value. Whatever sin has killed in your life, Jesus is going to restore. That's his power, his plan, and his promise. So you're like, what does this at all have to do with Ecclesiastes? I saw my wife asking that question in her head. Good good question. Thanks for asking. So far in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, last week, we studied how um, Solomon has, has called kind of a conference room meeting. He's kind of our regional manager here. And he's thrown out everything in this life that could possibly bring a person joy. And there were nine things we studied last week that could bring a person joy or happiness. And he's left them scattered in the middle of the, the room or the um, yard for everyone to consider, okay? So now what? So Solomon's like, what's going to make me happy? 
I, I don't know what to do. So he gives us some advice. All of us should be kind of in this place where we're like, okay, Solomon, you've just told me that nothing is really going to make me happy in this life. So what do I do now? He says, number one, we should hate life. Wow. Number two, yet, even though we hate life, we should choose to join those who will actually be wise and do the right thing in this life. And he's going to give us some reasons why we should do that. So that's where we get the title of our sermon, Hate the Cursed Life and Join the Resistance. Hate. I hate life. That's what Solomon is going to say. That's, that's going to be one of the main points of today. So let's look at what he says. Chapter 2, verse 12 is where we start. He says, Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He's basically saying here, I, I am asking how I should live this life. I'm cons- I want to study how I should live this life. Should I use wisdom or folly? And Should I be smart or stupid? For, he says, what can a man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. So Solomon says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share what will work in this life. I figured it out. I got some, some truth I want to share with you. And I want to, it, it's coming from the king. So listen up. And then he says, then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The, man's, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that, he, that the same event happens to them all. Can anyone guess what this event is that happens to both smart people and dumb people? Death, right? They all die. And Solomon is super bummed about that. He's like, okay. I know being smart is better than being dumb. But what does it really matter? We all die. He's saying it's obvious that being it's better to be wise, but in the end it doesn't really matter because everyone dies. And, and this is a valid question. So what's the point of life? And what's the point of being a good person? We got to actually wrestle with this question. Why should be wise? we be wise in this life if we're still going to lose? I'll tell you later. So Solomon said in my heart, uh, so I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity, for there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for it is all vanity and a grasping for the wind. So when we hear our regional manager say, I hated life, it causes us to feel weird. When you hear someone say, I hated life, we're so used to people sugarcoating life, especially preachers. Oh, you should be happy. Everything should be good. Everything is all good. I'm so blessed. Hashtag blessed. You know what I mean? That's for you. <laughs> how are you? I'm super. No, how are you really? Uh, that's too personal. Go away. Right? That's how we live. Or, it, you know, when you go to Chick-fil-A, 
which you do and weekly, I know. It's always my pleasure to serve you, right? That's such a lie. Because it can't always be your pleasure, especially when there's jerks, you know, saying, I didn't order this, and you look fat, and I'm sure, but they always say it, but I don't think it's sincere all the time. Sometimes I think I hear something else when they're saying, it's my pleasure. I hear, you're a big goofball. Sometimes people are jerks, you know. What's worse than people sugarcoating life is that I think we even tend to want to correct Solomon here. I did. When I first was reading this book, I, I was like, Solomon, I think I could teach you a lesson or two about being happy. Uh, it feels like he's so off base from the prosperity message that we get from so many preachers. So if you've never heard of that, there's this thing called the prosperity gospel, which teaches you, a lot of pastors will teach you, God wants you to be happy and rich. You guys ever heard that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's misunderstanding the Bible, and it's not, it's, it's poop cookies. Have you ever heard of poop cookies? Yeah. Poop cookies are, they have a lot of good things in them. You make them with 99% sugar and chocolate and good stuff. And then you just put 1% poop in them. Do you want poop cookies? No, you don't want that. You do not want that. We don't have enough Tic Tacs around. So that's what it is when you tell someone, God just wants you to be happy. And you don't tell them, what it means to follow Jesus. Okay? God does want you to be happy. That's true in the Bible. God cares very much about your joy and happiness. But God calls us to follow him and to a deep relationship. And anybody who's married knows that sometimes a relationship is difficult and sometimes it's even painful to open yourself up to somebody. But God says, that's what I'm calling you to. I want you to know me and I, as I know you, and I love you. But it won't always be easy. And um, BK's like, yes, marriage is. <laughs> Sorry for calling you out. <laughs> wow, that was awesome. I couldn't have planned that. Okay, so we think when Solomon is like, I hated life, and this life is such a bummer, I think maybe he's just immature, right? But that's not true. Maybe he's just burned out. Maybe he needs a vacation. And uh, what's, what's awesome is that Solomon is actually the right one. Solomon is right to think this way. Uh, and we already saw Jesus felt this way about life. Let's go on and read, you know, we think, let's go read some of those comforting parts of the Bible. Those parts that, you know, talk about our joy and our hope and seeing miracles all the time. Let's do that. Yet, actually, when you actually read the Bible, you'll see that there are so many people that were very, very upset. Very hurt, very broken, very angry. 
very real. In fact, the Bible's filled with a lot of people who look a lot like us. You know, someone like Job, he had a reason to be angry, didn't he? All his family was murdered, except for his wife that told him he should have died. His, everything he owned was stolen, and then he got the worst sickness in history. He, he had every reason to turn his back on the Lord, and he was very upset. He's like, God, why did you do this to me? I want to know. And there's a whole book about that. David, he was hunted by his mentor and someone he really looked up to. Saul, who tried to kill him for years. Elijah thought he was the last good person in the world. You guys ever felt that way? I'm the only person who wants to do what's right. And then we finally get to Jesus, as you're reading the Bible, who said in his most pressing moment in the garden, the night before he was murdered, may this cup pass from me. And my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, why are you speaking with such doubt and, and, and pain? Don't you know everything is awesome? Everything is super? Just live your best life now, Jesus. Mm. So what does it mean to hate life? Well, first of all, it means hate life, not hate God. <laughs> Which you probably would think you would hear from church. See, we can actually separate all the bad that flows from the fountain of the curse that happened in the garden from the grace and mercy that God wants to shower upon us. In Psalm 18.6, it says this, In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and he and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. So guys, I want you to know this. You can know, we can know that God is the source of our help and our comfort. We are supposed to press into his presence to seek him out when you are in pain and when you are feeling uh, that hatred for this life that you should feel, that you are going to feel. Why? Why? If God is in charge of everything, why would I go to him if he has let all this happen? If he is really in charge of everything, why would I go to him? First Peter chapter 5 says this, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he... What? I didn't hear you. What? He cares for you. He truly does. Well, I don't think he... Well, I don't care what you think. He does. But it doesn't look like... But he does. You might not understand why it looks the way that it looks or why it feels the way it feels, but God says, this is the truth. Come to me and cast your cares upon me because I do care for you. I really do. Thinking and speaking about how much pain we're feeling and how much we need and our sorrow isn't immature. And I think sometimes out there, in the world and even in church, it's like, oh, they always talk about how, how, how bad they are feeling or all the bad things that they're going through. And it's not immature. It's right and it's needed for us to bring those things to God, cast them upon him. It's important to bring all that to God. 
Job, at the end of his book, he was commended for bringing his complaint straight to God. God said, you did the right thing, Job. God never told him why all the bad stuff happened. But he said, Job, this whole book is about this. You did the right thing when you came to me and brought all your trash to me and said, what do I do with this? And God said, now we're talking. That's what, that's what you need. You need me in your life. He's not intimidated by your junk. He's not overwhelmed by the bad things that have happened to you. He's not afraid of your doubts or your questions or any of your feelings. God can handle us hating life. He did too when he was here. This world stinks. Now he's going to take care of it in due time, at the right time. He's going to fix it all. And it's actually best that we hate life now. It's best that we don't get too attached to this life or anything in it, for the next one is coming really soon. I used to be 20 years old, not too long ago. Like three weeks ago is what it feels like. Now I'm going to turn 40 this year, and I feel like I'm about to die. Because <laughs> I'm old. The next life is coming really soon, and the next life is way, way, way longer than this one. And it's way more important. Here's a quote for you from a book I read this week. Uh, All this is to say that the wise learn to manage life not by frantically trying to glue together all the knocked-over vase pieces, but by gathering all the shattered and jaggered pieces and powdered dust from the floor and bringing them to God. That's how the wise handle life. So now we're going to learn from Solomon real quick how to hate life better. Verse 18 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, Then I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun because I must leave it to a man, the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor, which I toiled in, and in that which I have shown myself to be wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave it as his heritage to the man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For... What has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart, which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes rest, takes no rest. Sorry. This also is vanity. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and that he should drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and a grasping for the wind. All right, that was a lot. Let me just summarize for you. Solomon teaches us that he's a little bit frustrated. He's frustrated because he's super smart and he builds a lot of great things and he thinks the guy coming after him is an idiot. Compared to him, he is. Okay, Solomon was the smartest guy to ever live. He told us so. 
So he shares that we live, we all live in this broken, messed up world, the same as everybody else, and we can't really fix it. And he's frustrated about that. So he says, what should we do? What should he do? Should we just give up and do evil because it doesn't really matter in this life? Solomon says, no. He says, we should still be wise. Why should we still be wise in this life if we're going to lose? Remember I told you I would answer that? Let me tell you. Okay, so imagine you're the coach of a basketball team of little kids, little kid basketball. Let's say you got some little kids and you're coaching and they're playing the other team and the other team is like biting and tripping and pushing all your little players and you're like, God, what is going on here? And, and the referees are friends with the other coach. And so the referees are just turning a blind eye. And they're not calling, count, calling any fouls on them, but they're counting, calling fouls on you guys. And you're getting beat like 100 to nothing. Okay? Imagine you're in that situation. So you call timeout. You gather your little team together. And you say, guys, I hate this game. And the team's like, I hate this game too. And he says, okay, suggestions? What should we do? And one of the little players says, I know. Let's, let's spit on all of them. Let's hold up picket signs and say, life's not fair, or they're wrong, or they're bad. And the coach says, yeah, I feel like doing that too. That would be cool, huh? That would be fun. But he says, I, this coach has more wisdom. And so this coach says, you know what I think we should do? I think we should be kind. I think we should just play the game. And I want you guys to be super nice. Just give your best. Just shoot the ball. And when you get pushed down, just say good play to the other team. Be kind. Be loving. And the, the, the kids are all, hey, coach, we're going to lose if we do that. And he said, you know what? We're going to lose anyway. And I'd rather all the, see all the people that are in the stands watching, I'd rather them see two different types of teams rather than us just be like them. We could just be a team like them that just does all the crud. And he says, I, I think we should just do this. Solomon is saying the same thing here in this section. He's saying we need to choose wisdom because if we don't, then folly is the only game in town. And God is watching the game. And all the angels are watching the game. And all the people who have played the game before are watching you play the game. And they're all cheering for you. And God is cheering for you. God's power and grace can use our lives in this world if we choose the way of wisdom. What is the way of wisdom? Well, if you look over on that wall, there's a, a poster that says humility and a poster that says faith. And those two describe what wisdom looks like. Humility, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And faith, putting our trust in God. That is wisdom. That's the ultimate wisdom. So in essence, Solomon is changing the purpose for why we play the game of this life? What is the motive that we have for choosing wisdom, being humble in this world, and choosing to trust God and live by faith? Hmm, interesting. Instead of playing to win, 
We play to brag to our father. Did you see me, God? They treated me like total crud, and I responded with love. I did what you told me to do. I love you, Father, because you first loved me. Isn't that cool? That's a different way to live this life. In our clubs, in our workplaces, in our families, in our blended families, in our churches, in our governments, in our neighborhoods, wisdom is the way that God's people choose to make a stand. Even if it means they're overlooked, undervalued, impoverished, slandered, forgotten, and misused. All right, so that's what Solomon says. Real quick, we're just going to look at James in the New Testament, tells us the exact same thing. So look at James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, what did we just say wisdom was? What? Oh, 322 Jesus points for you. <laughs> you have like 30 million now. If any of you lacks wisdom, he says, let him ask of God, who gives liberally to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a good promise, right? But let him ask in faith without and with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ah, so James says here, if anyone wants to really be a wise man, this is how you do it. And this isn't primarily about making decisions like, where am I going to go to school? Where am I going to live? What job am I going to have? Who am I going to marry? Although those things can be included in wisdom, it really isn't about that. James is teaching us the same thing as Solomon. He's saying, you have a choice of living with wisdom or with folly. Or as James puts it, wisdom from God or wisdom from below. We can, you can use a bunch of other terms to describe this. You can use the wisdom of your flesh or the wisdom of the spirit. You can walk in the wisdom of yourself or the wisdom of the spirit. My wisdom versus his wisdom, what I feel and think versus what he says is true. Those are the two ways we can walk. So he explains it in chapter three when he says, who is wise and understanding among you? I'll tell you, you want to know if you're wise or if you're an idiot? Here you go. Let him show by good conduct that he, his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and evil and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. James says, guys, it's so easy. You just look at your lives and you can discern whether you have wisdom and you're walking in wisdom, or you're not. And you can do that by judging the fruit. If you're self-seeking and have bitter envy, and you're confused, 
He says, those are clear indications that you have not, you're not walking in God's wisdom, but the wisdom of man. Versus if you see in your life that you have, you're pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, no partiality or hypocrisy. He says that is a life that has God's wisdom. And what do we do if we don't have that wisdom, guys? What did he say? Ask him. James explains all we have to do is ask God for it if we don't have it, and that means it's a grace thing. Because grace is always something that you ask for, and God gives it for how much? Free. It's free. But it takes humility, because you're not going to say you need it if you don't believe that you need it. And it takes faith. You have to believe that God's the one who gives it. Humility. It's a grace thing. Grace is always ask and receive. It's never work and earn, right? Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Grace has a giver and a receiver, a father and a child. And that's what a grace relationship with God is. We need and he supplies. We ask and he provides. We call and he answers. Does that make sense? Okay, what part of that is go to church and try really hard? None of it. If you don't have the stuff that God wants to see in your life, he says, come to me and I will provide it to you. Instead of just going our own way of self-seeking folly, we are called to join the resistance of you know, resisting the self-life, going against folly and fleshly living, but actually living by grace. The resistance of, is God calling us to be wise, even though you're not going to win in this world. It's not going to get you ahead in this world. But your Father sees. The Spirit will equip you and, and pour out joy and life. A grace life is not satisfied with the way things are and the way people generally live. The way things are bad and painful. Nobody, you don't have to be happy with where your life is at. And nobody on the other team is going to praise you for being a humble person. But God knows who trusts him. God sees who's asking for wisdom and living with wisdom. God is keeping score. Not the world. And he's so proud of every moment that we walk in wisdom. And if we fail, he is reminding us to ask him for the grace that we need to succeed the next time. He never says, I told you so. He always is inviting you, come, come to me. We'll get you. You know, I know you fell off the bike. I'll pick you up. I'll put you back on and we'll do this again. God gives wisdom to those who ask. So the last thing we'll say, is wisdom a thing? No, actually, wisdom is a person. And when God gives wisdom to you, he is giving himself to you. He is giving Jesus to you. You ask for wisdom, God says, okay, here's Jesus. Jesus is our wisdom. And that's really cool because as we accept him and learn from him and, and walk with him, we learn wisdom. 
We learn about what he loves by seeing what he hates. We learn that he never hates on people or on good things or on pleasures, but he, he does hate on sin and, and the curse that causes sin, and he hates on religion a lot. And the opposite of religion is following Jesus. Luke 9.23, we'll end with this. You guys come on up, the worship team. We'll sing two more songs um, here at the end of service. You guys are so awesome for hanging in there and, and tuning in the whole time. You guys are just awesome. Good job. Good job. Luke 9.23 says, And he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Okay? Religion is take up everything and do it all yourself. Show me what you can do. Nate, will you get the lights? As, and we are just, we never want to be religious people. We don't want that to be what you get from any of this. We want you to understand and we want you to hear today that Jesus did everything already for you. He did it all and he says all you need to do is follow me. Pick up your cross. What does that mean? It means die to self. Everything we wanted out of life, everything we hoped or we thought we should do, we say, you know what, I'm done with it. Jesus, you tell me what this life is. Jesus, you tell me. I'm going to walk with humility, saying, I don't know. God will tell me. And I'm going to walk with faith, saying, God will tell me. And God will give me all that I need. So that is what the message of the gospel is. If you have sinned, Jesus has paid the price. And if you have walked away, Jesus is inviting you back. And if you need some healing or you just need someone to vent to, Jesus is your God. And he wants to hear from you and he loves you so much. And so he invites every single person. Uh, we, we have communion available. And Jesus says, do this as much as you can. As often as you get together, take communion. And what does that mean? It means we have a little package with a bread and a little thing of grape juice. And if you believe in Jesus and he is your Lord and you have asked him to be your Savior, you have every right to come and say, Jesus, I celebrate what you did. Communion is never about what you did. It's always about what he did. And so if you want to celebrate that, then Jesus says, do it by taking a little piece of bread and remembering that my body was broken for you and taking a little bit of the cup and drinking it and remember that my blood was given for you. Self-sacrifice is the ultimate wisdom, Jesus would say. And I give it to you. I give you all of me and I invite you to receive all of what I did into your life, into your heart. You have all forgiveness if you need it. You have all joy and wisdom if you need it. And if you're just having a rough day, I'll, I'll give you a hug. I love you. And that's what Jesus would say to us today. So these guys are going to lead us in a couple songs. Anytime during these songs, you guys just get up and come over to where the communion is over here and just grab one and take it back to your seat. And you connect with God personally and, and tell him, I celebrate, I thank you for what you did for me. And as we sing these songs, Father, we just, we come right into your presence. We respond to what the truth of your word has told us today, that, um, 
that you are, are with us. You have called us to live, live and walk with wisdom and that uh, you will give us all that is needed for us to be the people that you've called us to be. I pray that, that everyone who's in here today would remember and take with them that your, your life that you have given to them. That it's not about rules and it's not about religion. It is about you, a person, have broken into our darkness with your everlasting light and given us all that we need. Jesus, we want to respond to you. We want to take up our cross and follow you. We don't even know what that means, but we know that your spirit will tell us and you'll give us all that we need because we are so broken and so weak, and you are so strong, and you are so kind and good and gracious. So we praise you, and I pray that during these songs, Lord, we would lift up our voices and sing with abandon about your your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you guys all stand with us as we sing these songs?